would like at this time to ask you to stand and let's read our scripture together this morning. It's found on page 873. It's John, the 11th chapter, beginning in verse 17. John 11, beginning in verse 17. Let's read together out loud the word of God. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. This is the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but these words never will. You can have a seat. As many of you know, we were uh, so blessed to have Oz with us yesterday as we brought uh, Conversations with Consequence here. And Oz just unfolded so much about evil and its operation in this world, how globalization is actually impacting uh, evil among us. And so, without further ado, would you help me in welcoming Oz Guinness? Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be back here again at Bel Air. I mentioned a joke yesterday, which was purely fiction, one that was tying our family uh, and some of the awkward situations we get in, because the founding of the Guinness Brewery was by Christians, but you can imagine there are a few odd things tied in with it. I told yesterday a totally fictional story, but let me tell you a really true one today. As I said, in the 18th century, there was a gin craze and beer drinking was the statement of Christian moderation over against gin. And uh, <laughs> today it would be wine. Anyway, in those days, beer was called fortified lemonade. And many of the greatest European breweries were founded by Christians. And certainly the Guinness Brewery was too. But there were a few odd things. One story, one of my ancestors was one of Ireland's most generous philanthropists, and as a Christian, he did it all anonymously. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, and so on. And the city fathers came to him in Dublin one day, and they said, look, you've done so much for us. Would you rebuild St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is in total disrepair? And we'd ask that we could have a very discreet thank you to the Guinness family for all they'd done for Ireland. Very reluctantly, he said, yes, if you promise it's discreet and uh, tasteful. Well, the day came when they unveiled and consecrated the new cathedral again. You can see it today. It's now a tourist site. 
The window went back, and there was the thanks to the Guinness family, and the city fathers who lack your Presbyterian understanding of the Scriptures, the city fathers have put a biblical text at the bottom of the thanks to the Guinness family, I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. <laughs> Seriously. Anyone in this country with their eyes and ears open knows that in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a mounting animosity against the Christian faith. A good deal of it is against Christians, and sadly, particularly on the religious right, they have deserved many of the attacks they've got. But part of the attacks are directly on the heart of the faith itself. So about 10 years ago, there were mounting attacks on what's called monotheism, the idea that there is one true God, said to be the source of intolerance and all sorts of dangerous things. But increasingly, the attack has been on the Christian relationship to evil from two directions. Either it's said, and you can see this almost a litany now, that religion, religion is the source of divisiveness and violence and evil, the main source in the world. Now, anyone who thinks for five minutes recognizes that that's rubbish. In the last century, more people were killed by secularist regimes in the name of a secularist ideology led by secularist intellectuals than all the persecutions in Western history combined. But they don't stop to think of that. A hundred million humans killed under communism, for example. But the other part of the attack is on the Christian faith along the lines that evil, they say, is the rock of atheism. In other words, if you look at the murderous things in the 20th century, supremely Auschwitz, how can anyone believe in God? So the great cry of Max Adorno and others, after Auschwitz, there can be no God. Evil, they say, is the rock of atheism. That one takes a little more answering. One could answer, but I don't have time for that, that in fact it's many of the great atheists who have no answer to evil. And if you know any of the story of the Auschwitz survivors, almost all of those who took their lives afterwards, Primo Levi, Jean Emery, and many others, Bruno Bettelheim, were people who were both atheists and intellectuals. And they were the ones who were actually unable to handle evil. But let's not attack them. What is it that gives us a deep Christian answer to this greatest of all human challenges, the mystery, the intractable mystery of evil in our human experience. One of the challenges to faith is, is evil that evil? And of course, in the light of the last century, we have to say yes. But if you look at the biblical answer, the Bible does not shy away from the challenges, intellectual, practical, emotional, or whatever. It doesn't shy away at all. Often the challenges are put in what's called the trilemma. You all know what a dilemma is, a challenge with two horns, but a trilemma has three. And as it's put over evil, they say, how can evil be really evil? 
and God be all good and God be all powerful. You can't have all three at once, they say. What does the Bible say? Well, the obvious quick exit, you can see this in Rabbi Kushner's book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? The quick exit is to say, well, we don't believe in all of them. You relax one of them. Evil isn't that evil. Of course it is. God isn't quite all good, but if there's a shadow of a speck of doubt about God's goodness, how on earth do you trust him? Or, Rabbi Kushner's the third one, God isn't really all-powerful. Bless his heart, he means well, but he's really not sovereign and in control of everything. The Bible doesn't relax any of them. Evil is evil. God is all-good. God is all-powerful. But what's distinctive is you have the insistence on the truth, but given a certain twist that changes it completely. And I want to take the first one today. Is evil really evil? The Bible says absolutely. But evil is evil, but it should have been otherwise. Now, what on earth am I mean? Well, let's look at this chapter, John 11, the famous story of the raising of Lazarus, and see this very unique, distinctive biblical position. Many of you know people from the Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, the New Age. Many of you know secularists, atheists, agnostics, materialists, and so on. Well, compare their views with this biblical view and hold them in your mind as the great contrast because you begin to see the wonder how the gospel is really good news when you really see the alternatives and the contrast. Contrast is the mother of clarity. And when you see the options on display compared with the biblical answer, you see the wonder of the good news that we have in Jesus. John 11, one of the great passages in the Bible, absolutely decisive for a Christian view of evil. What's remarkable, though, this is the story of the raising of Lazarus. The actual miracle is dealt with very briefly, two verses, and very laconically. Jesus calls him back and says, unwrap him and let him go. That's about it in terms of the miracle. But the very long chapter is about something else. It's not the what. It's not even the how. It's really all about who. The setting, the stage, the significance in the life of this extraordinary man, Jesus of Nazareth, and what this says about him. The three things here I'd ask you to look at, and you can look at it in much greater depth on your own afterwards, it's the middle one that gives us an incredible clue to a Christian view of evil. But first, notice the assurance of our Lord. From the moment in the beginning of the chapter when he hears the news, your friend Lazarus is sick, right through to where he comes to Lazarus's tomb and prays, Jesus is completely in command. Calm, controlled, assured. You can see this in a couple of directions. One is his timing. The other is the various things he says. Take his timing. We're an age that prizes competence, coolness, and all that sort of thing. Take, say, damage-controlled politics. We see a lot of this in Washington. They need to do it. But you see in damage control, someone immediately seizes the initiative when a crisis blows up, grabs the high ground, 
doesn't let a moment pass, because if you do, on the one hand, if you don't act quickly, all sorts of misunderstandings will arise. And if you don't act quickly, events will spin out of control. But look at Jesus. It says, after he heard the news of Lazarus' death, he stayed where he was for two days. He did nothing. And you can see very clearly that the misunderstandings are growing. Some of his disciples, as you can read in the words of Thomas, were thinking he was afraid. He was in the Transjordan because he'd almost been arrested the previous year. And many people thought, well, he's gone to this safer place and he's afraid to cross the Jordan and go back and risk himself. So Thomas thinks, and maybe others did too, he was afraid. Or probably many of the crowd thought, well, he didn't really love this man that much and he didn't care. He did nothing for two days. Now work out the timing of it. It took one day for the messenger to come from Bethany on the west side of the Jordan to where Jesus was on the east side of the Jordan. So that was one day. And then Jesus did nothing for two days. And then when he did act, it took a fourth day and back he went to Bethany. So one, two, three, four days had gone by. And when he arrives, it's too late. He's dead. Lazarus had been in his grave four days. Too late, everyone says. And you can see Martha, Lord, if you'd only been here, you could have done something. Mary says the same. The crowds say the same. He'd done these amazing things all over the place for the blind and the sick and the lepers and so on. If he'd been there any second up to dying, he could have done it. You may know the Jews had an understanding that the spirit after someone died hovered over their body one day, two days, three days, and on the fourth day, gave up, went off, and they were really dead. But you notice Jesus waits exactly four days, and Lazarus is dead beyond doubt, dead beyond doubt. And our Lord calmly moves knowing what he's doing. You can see his assurance, too, in his sayings. Again and again, he says things in this chapter, and he's seeing something differently. He's seeing way beyond what they see, so they misunderstand him. And he's totally at cross-purposes with them. But he doesn't bother to clear up their confusion. He says, this is not going to end in death. And they think, he's not going to die. As I said, he delays, and they think he's afraid of going over the Jordan. He says all sorts of things. Martha, for instance, I will raise him up. Oh, yes, Lord, on the last day. Good conventional Jewish belief, of course, on the last day. But then he calls out a deeper belief in him, that he's the Messiah, the Christ who's come. And he says, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she says. A few verses later, she says, don't take the stone off the tomb. He'll stink. None of them quite sees what Jesus is doing. He sees beyond. He sees further. And again and again, you have all sorts of confusions, and he doesn't bother to clear it up. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to paint a cool Jesus. We've got a supermarket full of Jesuses today on offer, and every generation tends to turn it into its own lifestyle. I don't mean that at all. 
Yes, our generation prizes confidence. Our generation prizes cool, cool man, cool, and so on. But there's something different here. You can have someone who's incredibly confident in ways that would stagger me. I'm not a computer wizard. I love my laptop and so on, but I couldn't repair one for the life of me. And I admire people who can do that. This is different. You don't find a single human being on the earth who's competent about death. Jesus was. Equally, our atheist friends would say, yes, well, there are many great noble atheists who are calm in the face of death. They misunderstand. It's one thing to be calm in the face of your own death. That can be very noble. It's another thing to be calm in the face of the death of someone you've lost that you love deeply. And if you're calm there, that's almost calm to the point of being cold and shows a deficiency of humanity. But Jesus is. Why? His immense assurance. But go on to see the second thing in the chapter, which many people miss. Not only his assurance, his anger. His anger. You have at the heart of this passage, verse 33 and verse 38, the very strongest Greek word for furious indignation, outrage. And it's used of Jesus. Many Christians read it. Don't notice it. There's a couple of reasons why, I think. One is the English translations are rather mild. It is the strongest Greek word, but very, very few of them actually express anger, which is a shame. But the other reason is we know the chapter too well. On the one hand, one of the most common Sunday school questions is, which is the shortest verse in the Bible? And John 11:35, Jesus wept. Two words. And people see the weeping, but not the anger. Or again, people know the passage so well, they know Lazarus is raised from the dead. So you jump from the problem to the answer, and they don't notice the things in between. Jesus face to face with his dead friend Lazarus in the tomb is absolutely outraged. Now notice... Three words in the chapter where you see very, very deep emotions. The first is the word used of Jesus in verse 35, that he wept. Now, that's not the same word used of Mary or of the mourners. The word used of Mary or the mourners they'd hired to come on as the ritual mourners is a word which is much closer to our English, to weep and to wail. Weeping and wailing almost goes together in the old-fashioned English. And you have a notion of forlorn, desolate, hopeless, something that's absolutely beyond any recovery. Weeping and wailing, that's not the word used of Jesus. The word used of Jesus is the same word used in Luke 19, where on Palm Sunday he goes around the corner and sees Jerusalem, and he breaks out into tears. He sees a way that could have led to peace. And it's going towards the siege of AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus is literally dissolved in grief. This is the same word here. Dissolved in grief. Jesus wept. But there's a second strong word, which is in the word shout. This word only comes ten times in the Bible, and eight of them are in the Gospel of John, and most of them are to do with the crowd shouting out, 
Crucify him, crucify him on Good Friday. Here you have the same powerful emotion, but the other way around. They were saying on Good Friday, death to the Prince of Life. Here, as it were, he's saying life to this pawn of death. But the word is the word that you'd use of a regimental sergeant major with a booming, stentorious voice that's a command. Out with you. And Lazarus comes out. But it's the third group of words that come twice where you see the anger. Verse 33 and verse 38. One word comes twice. One word comes once. The word that comes once is pretty strong. In verse 33, it's used of the disciples grieving over Jesus about to be betrayed, or Jesus moved because Judas is about to betray him, and so on. But the real strong word is the one that's used twice, verse 33 and verse 38. And it literally means to be outraged. The root of this word is to snort through the nose, to snort, and came to be used to be snorting in spirit and therefore to be furiously angry. For instance, Aeschylus, the great Greek tragedian, he uses this word when he's describing war horses about to charge. Here's the Greek army. The trumpets sound. The stallions in the cavalry rear up on their hind legs, snort through their nostrils, and charge. And that word became the word for furious anger, probably our closest English, outrage. Something is vilely wrong, and we're outraged. And that's the word used of Jesus. Why? Oregon, the early church father, rather ridiculously said, Jesus was angry at himself for being moved, emotional, a minute or two earlier, which is crazy. Others have said, well, he was outraged in sympathy, but that's a little disproportionate if that's all it really means. The deepest understanding is this, that Jesus was outraged at the presence of sin and evil and death, which in his father's world were alien. They were intruders. They were not supposed to be there. Remember, here's the Son of God, and one day he and his father had made a world and they pronounced it good, very good, with beauty and with harmony and creativity and everything like that. And now as the Son of God, he enters this world that he and his fathers have made, and he sees oppression and brokenness and dysfunction and ruin all around him. And just like a detective hunting down a serial killer with a mark each time of the same victim, here he is, a week later, he's going to corner him on the cross. Here is the last victim on his way to cornering the evil one. And everything about the brokenness and ruin of the world is somehow symbolized, summarized in his own dear friend Lazarus, And he's furious. He's furious. What some of us call the bifocal vision of the gospel. We always see the things as Christians with two lenses. 
what the world was made to be, good, very good, beautiful, and what the world has been marred into being because of the fall. But here's the point. It wasn't supposed to be this way. It should have been otherwise. And as you look at our Lord, you see his face flushed with tears, red with anger, and thank God for what we see of his anger. But there's a third thing you see in the chapter 2, and that is the assertion he's making through raising Lazarus from the dead. Many Christians almost make Jesus a kind of wandering claim maker, as if he popped out of a home every day like a cuckoo out of a clock and made a new claim and people who wanted to follow him took it down on their yellow pads and went back to their buzz groups and discussed it. And if they agreed, they followed and so on. Read the Gospels, it's not like that. The fastest of them took three years to realize what he was saying. And the claims of Jesus are not just verbal. Many of them are acted, or what are called symbolic actions. Just as in the 60s, people tore up credit cards or burned flags or burned bras and so on as symbolic actions in the counterculture. So it's many of the things that Jesus did, not just what he said, that put the strongest claims out onto the table. And that's what happens here. This story takes place in a very crucial three or four months interim. In chapter 10, you'd have the winter feast of dedication. And if you go back to chapter 10, you see twice he had nearly been once stoned and the second time arrested by the authorities. And he escaped and he crossed the Jordan and for three or four months was living virtually in seclusion. And you can see almost the divisions in his disciples, the hotheads, the zealots among them saying, force it, go back, go back, confront them. Probably the faint hearts were saying, no, don't force them at all. And when Jesus decides to go back to raise Lazarus, he's not crossing just the Jordan. He's crossing what we call, following Julius Caesar, his Rubicon, his Rubicon. And he's throwing down the gauntlet to the chief priests and the scribes and the authorities. And you can see why. Whatever resurrections he'd done before then, the stories had come down to Jerusalem, but they were way up there in Galilee. There was some widow in Nain who was supposed to have had her son raised from the dead, but who knows the fellow was really died? They probably made a mistake. And there was some synagogue ruler called Jairus who was supposed to have his little daughter raised from the dead. And you know these Galileans. It's a long way away, these country bumpkins. We're talking about the Ozarks here or whatever. You know, we're talking about country people who believe things and they were suggestible and it's easy to dismiss, but not this. Of course, you read in this chapter that there were all the mourners who'd come from Jerusalem to Bethany. And every mourner was a witness to the resurrection. And every witness to the resurrection was a witness back in Jerusalem. And Lazarus was someone many of them knew. And Lazarus himself was walking around. And Bethany was two miles from Jerusalem. So clearly here is a provocation 
the scribes and the authorities cannot duck. And what you see at the end of this chapter is the real trial of Jesus. So yes, in Good Friday, they had that night trial, but that's the sham. They'd already sentenced him, and they do it here. Because they realize if he does this, and he's the Lord over death, then truly he is more than a prophet, and he's the Lord over life. And they're in trouble with the Romans. And as Caiaphas says, the choice is now clear. Either this one man goes, or we're in trouble with the Romans and our whole nation, and the city and the temple go too. So better that he goes, and we survive and preserve our city and the people. And from then onwards, it said, they plot to see when they can kill him. Through raising Lazarus from the dead, the claim of Jesus with no words is that he is the Lord over death and over life. Now, how does this, and I want to give you some points to think of as you go back to lunch, how does this affect us with our Christian view of evil? Two thoughts. First, we as Christians have a duty to be angry at times. There is no question that anger is one of the seven deadly sins. And if you know the seven deadly sins, anger is reckoned to be the one that almost everyone acknowledges is highly destructive and almost everyone sees is demonstrated all too often. Take the murderous rage of Rwanda. 800,000 slaughtered in the fastest time of any slaughter in the 20th century. A rage beyond belief. Or take individuals like the great Alexander the Great or someone in our own time like Henry Kissinger. Many great leaders have a rage problem. Everyone knows anger is a problem when it rages out of control. And you can see a great deal of anger today. And you can see political movements like the gay movement trying to use anger as a tool. There's no question anger is a deadly sin. But, on the other hand, our Lord is angry. You have the most extraordinary thing in Revelation of the wrath of the Lamb. There are things about which God is angry and things about which the people of God should be angry. And the early church had a much more balanced position. For instance, Chrysostom says, he who is not angry when he has cause to be angry sins. Now, we've got to be very careful we make the difference. One simple test is never be angry when it's you that's hurt or injured, because our own personal feelings and egos and things come into it too much. But again and again in a world like ours, with the evil, the injustice, the oppression that's happening all around us, think of Darfur and many other things, we should be outraged. We have a duty at times to be angry. But the second thing that's very practical out of this is we have the freedom to be angry. There are many Christians who are afraid to show anger at evil or afraid to show grief at loss, and they're too pious by heart. 
They're harder on themselves than our Lord is. Here is God's face wet with tears. We're free to cry. Here is God's face flushed with anger. We are free to be outraged at what is outrageous. We are free to be. Nigel and Jilly Goodwin, who are great friends who are here this morning, we first met at Labrie many, many decades ago. I'll never forget the time when I was with Francis Schaeffer at Labrie when we heard the news of a Christian leader in Paris whose son had been killed in a cycling accident. The story came back that he preached at his son's funeral with tremendous faith on Romans 8:28. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. And people said it was wonderful how strong he was in faith and so on. And I was with Shafu and he heard this news and he simply said, I hope he felt the same thing inside. Said no more. Three weeks later, we got a call. Could this eminent Christian leader come to Labrie and talk to Schaefer? And I remember greeting him, taking him into Schaefer's study, which was his bedroom. Five minutes later, the rest of us in the chalet left. If you know Swiss chalets, they have thin wooden walls. If you raise your voice, you can hear it easily in another room. This man, far from quiet, confident faith in God, was blaspheming and cursing. Why had God done this and taken his one beloved son? Later, I asked Schaefer, we left the chalet to give him privacy. I asked Schaefer what he'd said, and he said, I took him to John 11. His idea of trusting God was you didn't express your emotions. And Schaefer took him to John 11 to show that Jesus himself weeps. Jesus himself is furious. Now, think carefully here, the comparison between this and our atheist friends, or our Hindu and Buddhist friends. In both Hinduism, Buddhism, and atheism, there's a common link, although they're very different worldviews. And that is, evil is natural to the world as they know it. For the Buddhist, dukkha, affliction, is just part and parcel of this world. For atheists, evil is just the world as we've got it. The great cry of this is the German philosopher Schopenhauer, who made the remark when he looked at the evil of the world, he said, the world should never have been. Can you feel the hell of that? Existence is the error, as Samuel Beckett said. The world should never have been. Existence is the error. So if you face evil in the world and the world is normal, you can hate it for all your worth, but there's no use. That's the way it is. The only answer is to fight it like the atheists do, but forlornly, or to detach yourself and resign and withdraw and renounce like the Hindus and the Buddhists do, both of them at the end of the day, with no hope of dealing with evil. But do you see the difference in the gospel? Not the world should never have been, but the world should have been otherwise. It once was otherwise. One day, thank God, it will be otherwise. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sex trafficking. There'll be no more oppression. There'll be no more domestic abuse. One day it was different, and one day coming it will be different. And what we look at now, the world should have been otherwise. It's alien. It's intrusive. Evil is the gate crasher. Evil is the party pooper. And we are free to grieve at it. We are free to be angry at it. 
go home and think of this. Thank God. Jesus never thanked God for evil. He was outraged. And so may we, and at times so should we. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you that in a world of so much suffering and abuse and torture and violence and war, you are a God of justice. And one day the last tear will be wiped away. And one day the last wrong will be righted. And the earth will live with the well-being of your shalom, your peace. Until that day, save us from ungodly anger, but grant that we may have an outrage and a love of justice that reflects who you are. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.